Greetings, David Onigman from Jambase here, coming at you inside of our podcast feed with a little something different today. No festival has roots that run deeper with Jambase than the High Sierra Music Festival. And after having to put on hold the festival for the past two years due to the effects of the global pandemic, we are ecstatic to return to Quincy, California for the 30th annual High Sierra over July 4th weekend. High Sierra recently launched a podcast, and you can subscribe to it on Spotify or listen to it directly on the festival's website, highsierramusic.com. Today, we wanted to bring you episode one of the High Sierra podcast right here inside the Jambase feed. Episode one features Tim Carbone of Railroad Earth, as well as Peter Rowan chatting with High Sierra Grandstand Stage MC and our good friend and neighbor when we camp at High Sierra, Mr. Tim Lynch. Episode two of the High Sierra podcast is also out, and Tim has an incredible chat with musical legend Femi Kuti. Femi, Tim, and Peter will all be at this year's 30th annual High Sierra. Tickets are moving fast to this legendary festival. You can pick up yours at highsierramusic.com. Without further ado, here's Tim's chat with Tim Carbone and Peter Rowan. Enjoy, and we'll see you in a few months in Quincy, California. Welcome to the High Sierra Podcast where we'll look at the past, present, and future of the High Sierra Music Festival through the lens of artists that will be performing at the 30th Annual High Sierra this summer in Quincy, California. I'm Tim Lynch. As the Grandstand Sage MC for many years now, I've had a front row seat to the festival, and I'll be your host on this journey. Railroad Earth first performed at High Sierra in the summer of 2001, and they instantly became festival favorites and friends of ours. They'll be returning to play sets on their own and to collaborate with the legendary Peter Rowan on the classic music of Olden in the Way. For this first episode, we'll hear from Tim Carbone of Railroad Earth about the band's history with the festival and about the music of Olden in the Way. Then we'll check in with Peter Rowan about Olden in the Way and collaborating with Railroad Earth on this music. It's the High Sierra Podcast, Episode 1, Railroad Earth and Peter Rowan. Railroad Earth played their second festival date at High Sierra in the summer of 2001. Their first was Telluride Bluegrass. This was only about their fifth show. I asked Tim Carbone how it was that they came to be playing such big stages so early in their career. We had a fairly aggressive manager who we made a five song demo and then sent that he sent that demo uh, to Craig Ferguson at Telluride. And uh, I'm pretty sure he got it to Roy over at High Sierra and, um, you know, essentially like, you know, Raised the, raised the flag and a couple of people saluted and uh, off we go. So I first saw you at High Sierra, but not on stage. I found one of my new favorite bands playing on top of an RV. What do you recall about that? Well, that was, was kind of like, uh, we, we were pretty much told that, hey, when you're going to you're going to get like, uh, you know, the whatever one play we got, it wasn't on the main stage. It was on the Americana stage or some one, some one other. I'm not sure which stage it was, but you know, it wasn't wasn't the main stage. And so we were basically it's like, you know, play wherever you want, whenever you want and just, you know, just get get give yourself some exposure, you know. And so uh, we had some friends that were that had rented an RV 
And they're like, well, let's play on top of the RV. And we're like, well, okay. And that's what we did. We just climbed up there. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a little bizarre, but it was actually wound up being pretty cool. It wound up being a little scene down, down below there on the ground. Oh, it was definitely a scene. Yeah, no, it was cool. And you know what? I mean, I get to this day, people come up to me probably at least a couple of times a year to tell me exactly what you said that like, you know, I just kind of happened on you playing in a plane on top of an RV. <laughs> I was here, you know, music festival in like 2001. I've like, been a fan ever since. So I guess it worked. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of your favorite high Sierra memories? Um, so you, you, you kind of, I'm, I'm going to guess you want me to answer like, what are some of my, my best, uh, uh, experiences with railroad earth, but like, mm -hmm. um, but you know, my, my best experience non-claim, I would say there was like two that are kind of, was my, uh, I was hanging with a friend who I hadn't seen in a while. And we just like made our way right up to like, you know, 30 feet from the stage to see my morning jacket, who I had been listening to for a while, I had bought their, their debut record when it came out. And, and, and so we would just, you know, spent the whole time hooting and hollering and just going nuts. And then the discovery of uh, Surprise Me, Mr. Davis in the late night hall, and a totally insanely good. great you know and then but other than that i would say our first time that we played the main stage when it when it actually wasn't light out we played like one where this the the sun had just gone down so we experienced the whole or the sun went down while we were playing and then it and you know it became twilight and you know lights came on and it was it that was like my favorite playing time because you know it's the the sunset there is just beautiful you know and, and being with it, you know, you're being the sunset, you're, you're framing the sunset on that stage. It's behind you, you know? And so it's a good experience for, for I think uh, the audience and a good experience for the, for the band. Coming to uh, High Sierra the first time, when we drove up, the first thing that struck me is as we're coming around that back entrance to get in to where the you know the, the you know the the band entrance on the left hand side, you, you uh, it was the first time I ever saw a, as giant a tall as tall a pile of logs that I'd ever seen, 
And then I came to realize that they were watering, they were watering them all down. And then I was like, that's because it's not only is it because it's hot out, but it's because that the weight of it itself. And when I'm talking about tall, I mean, it's like 50 feet tall pile of locks and they're all over the place. There's like a whole like football field worth of piles of logs that are 50 feet tall. And they're watering them down because the actual mass of that kind of that, that amount of organic material produces its own heat and it would actually uh, ignite the wood. Yeah. So yeah. insane. I mean, I'm, and just me coming up going like, all right, I'm in the West now because we don't have anything like that. It used to be big. We had giant, giant trees in Pennsylvania. The white pines were, you know, we're talking, you know, red, redwood size pines the largest pines on the planet were here in pennsylvania but they were logged out by the 1850s but um yeah holy smokes that was like that was a true you know it's like well welcome to california buddy <laughs> what's the difference between the way you approach say a grandstand stage set and that late night hall set oh that's a, that's a good question um and there is a difference um we uh we tend to put some of the more heady material in the late night stuff like there, like we do a number of songs that are you know like extended jams and they become pretty psychedelic you know um and those tend to wind up there'll be groups of them or more than one i should say in a late night set that'd be maybe three or four whereas it may be one or two on a on a grandstand stage have we tend to have a more guest come up late night you want to get you want to get that's what pe people kind of expect it almost you know like mm. you're going to have some guests up and you know i remember one time we did uh what did we do i forgot what we did it was a band tune that might have been i'm not sure i can't remember but we did it but i play piano on it and we had a horn section mm -hmm. up with it uh and, and the horn section was you know wound up being uh Who's that real hotshot sax player that was playing with uh, Bella Fleck for a while? Was played with oh, oh played Jeff with, Coffin. Uh, Jeff Coffin came yeah. up and yeah. my uh, a bunch of other like you know badass. The next thing I turn around and there's like and I had text I had, I think I texted my my buddy uh, uh, trump a trumpet player that I knew and said hey man if you know any horn players around we're looking for a couple of horn players and when you and you come and next thing I know I turn around and it was four of them. It was him and like three sax players. And I'm like, whoa, well, that's the horn section. Yeah. 
you have teamed up with Peter Rowan. And, uh, and I don't think this, you've done this a couple of times now, as far as I understand it. You, uh, Railroad Earth and Peter Rowan playing the music of Olden in the Way. John Skeener came up with the idea. Why don't we do uh, Olden and Rowan? We'll get, we'll get uh, you know, we've all played with Peter before various situations, but just never done Olden, you know, Olden in the Way. But so John reached out to him and uh, it was really cool. Everybody had a great time. Um, you know, a lot, and we all obviously, um, you know, that, that was a touchstone record. And, uh, but, you know, we had a great time and Peter had a great time. And, we, and the, the last thing we said before we all parted ways was, hey, let's do this again sometime. in the way featuring Peter Rowan, David Grisman, Jerry Garcia, John Kahn, and Vassar Clements was a hugely influential album for so many of us. Tim Carbone cited another project of Peter Rowan's from the time as a more major influence on him. Mule Skinner featured Peter Rowan on guitar and vocals, David Grisman on mandolin, John Kahn on bass, Clarence White on guitar, Bill Keith on banjo, and Richard Green on the fiddle. Green had also played in a band with Rowan called Sea Train before that. The touchstone record for me that included a similar lineup, uh, in a way, was uh, Mule Skinner. Um, that's the record that I touched. That and obviously uh, Will Circle Be Unbroken, the nitty gritty dirt band. But yeah, because um, I had been following. Uh, Obviously, I was very familiar with Vassar, but I, at, the, at that particular time in my life, I was more listening to Richard Green as a fiddle player. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he was uh, mostly because I'd seen C-Train when I was a teenager. And, um, you know, I watched uh, Richard play uh, Orange Blossom Special on it. And that was like, okay, that you can actually approach this bluegrass stuff and do crazy ass like rock and roll licks in a bluegrass team. That's kind of my deal. I'm not really a bluegrass fiddle player. I just play one on TV, you know, but, um, you know, I'm just, I'm mostly just, you know, I, I listen to, I more listen to sax players and guitar players than fiddle players. That's just mm-hmm. like, you know, it's what, that's what, uh, that's where I get my inspiration from for the most part. But the thing I loved about Olden in the Way was, believe it or not, it was like, I wasn't that big a, a 
Grateful Dead fan back then, Older in the Way, the thing that, that kind of blew my mind about Older in the Way was, uh, was Garcia's banjo playing. I was like, wait, wait a minute, that's Jerry Garcia? That's crazy. And, uh, and then through, no, I read something about, this is kind of weird because he led me down a little bit of a, that whole thing led me down a, a, a little rabbit hole that was really cool. I read something that he was like, uh, he, was, he was big time into Clarence White. He liked Clarence White's guitar playing. And I bought this live Kentucky Colonels record that he introduced the band. He's like, oh, now ladies and gentlemen, the Kentucky Colonels. <laughs> and uh, I love that record. I still have it. And and you know, so he his playing. There was just something about his playing that was unlike any other banjo player. I'm not a banjo player. So I don't know. I don't really don't know anything. About, you know, I don't know whether he was a great banjo player, but I know that there wasn't anybody that sounded exactly like him. So. So who is Peter Rowan that had such a deep influence on Tim Carbone and so many others of us? His bluegrass roots ran deep, being the first member of Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys who was not from the South. He joined Monroe's touring band in 1964 and remained with them until the spring of 1967. I asked Peter how a young man from Boston became a bluegrass boy, how he became interested in bluegrass at all. And I was a war baby, you know, a boomer. I guess you call him, uh, born in 42. And uh, the radio that I listened to as a kid around, when I was a kid, to, you know, my mother let me like a, listen to the radio during nap time when I was five, six, four or five years old. And uh, I heard uh, this music on the, on the radio. I didn't know what it was. And it, it had banjos and fiddles and everything like that. It was part of somehow related to country music. And uh, it was bluegrass, but I didn't know it. It was uh, intriguing music amongst the other stuff I heard, which was some early rock and roll and stuff like that. Uh, um, and later on, I had a little, uh, little band called the Cupids, and we were playing record hops all around the, the Boston area. Jump ahead, you know, 10 years. And uh, uh, one night we went by this place called Hillbilly Ranch and I uh, poked my head in and sure enough, there was a bluegrass band. It was a uh, the Lilly Brothers from Clear Creek, West Virginia with Don Stover on the five string banjo. Right. And um, very soon after that, uh, Bill Monroe came to town and uh, he needed a, a band. So uh, Bill Keith, the banjo player who had worked with, with the father of bluegrass called me up and uh, asked me to 
join in, you know, it was just absorbing the sounds, you know, and also when I was 12 years old, I, I started square dancing. And so we square danced to old time bands, mostly made up of uh, college students from Harvard, you know, that loved folk music. And um, so I was already dancing to what would be bluegrass, but my life was in uh, being a young teenager of those times and playing uh, rock and roll, uh, you know, Buddy Holly and the Crickets music, Richie Valens, Chuck Berry. And, uh, um, but as I got out into the world and heard music, I, I began to realize that bluegrass was its own thing. And I, I, I was loving the blues, you know, somebody turned me on to Lightning Hopkins and was listening to Lead Belly and, uh, in those days, you could go to a record store and uh, sit in a record booth and and listen to records, you know. And 33 RPMs were the the new thing on the market. And uh, I found a, a CD of, I mean, a, a, an LP of Bill Monroe doing a tune that I had been doing from the Lead Bellies side, you know, which was the blues. Uh, Bill Monroe did a tune called In the Pines, which was pretty much the same tune as uh, Lead Belly's Black Girl. And um, I just, uh, I thought the blues had a, a good place in uh, Bill Monroe's approach to, you know, which was really old time, you know, uh, mountain music in a way, but uh, Mr. Bill Monroe streamlined the sound. You know, he wanted the fiddles to play a certain way and he wanted the, the band to have a certain amount of drive. So I just, you know, I just got interested in playing that uh, acoustic, big old Martin Dreadnought was my, was the object of veneration, you know. Mike Seeger and Ralph Rensler were great uh, uh, champions of Bill's music. And uh, they booked a tour for Bill Monroe to come solo to New England and play. And there was no money, this is what I'm saying. There was no money for him to bring a band. So he came solo and Bill Keith, who had played banjo in the Bluegrass Boys, hired me at that time to be the uh, uh, guitar and lead singer. And I, I loved it. And I used to hang out all the time I played mandolin with Bill Keith's band, with Jim Rooney. And I'd hang out over there with, with Bill and we would just sit, you know, stay up late, you know, listening and listening and listening to live shows. Uh, and I would learn a few songs, you know. Uh, I studied Bill's music before I played with him. And when it came time to doing a duet, I chose an unusual song, which is called uh, The Old Kentucky Shore. And uh, it has a certain tonality that led directly to me writing uh, The Walls of Time with Bill. Um, 
although I have to say that the Walls of Time melody is entirely Bill Monroe's melody. I wrote, but I would say, you know, two thirds of the words, but um, it, it, it's a certain tonality of the blues, I would say. You know, it's a real bluesy kind of high lonesome kind of sound and not not bluegrass in the like, you know, you know, uh, kick up your heels and dance around at the festival kind of thing. That's another side of bluegrass. But the bluesier, slower, more soulful side kind of made me feel an, a kinship with um, something in Bill Monroe himself that he would define as uh, well, let me quote Bill Monroe. He said, when the music's right, man, it's like you're flying. And then he said, you can hear the ancient tones. When the music's right, it's like, it's like you're flying. You can hear the ancient tones. Meaning, you don't try and like consciously go, well, now let's play the ancient tones. But you just play the music with a lot of passion and and passion and in bluegrass uh, you know um, detail uh, attention to detail Lord Let's skip ahead a little bit. You eventually leave the Monroe Band and you come out to San Francisco and you're playing rock and roll and psychedelic music. And at some point, you wind up living near Garcia in Stinson Beach. Yeah, I, I left a band called Sea Train, and and I had written Midnight Moonlight. And when I drove across the country that fall, I wrote in the land of the Navajo. And I had no plans with anything to do with this, but I was playing rock and roll with my brothers around the Bay Area doing benefits for Wavy Gravy and this and that. And, but enjoying, you know, playing Telecaster. And, but in the mornings I would, you know, out of Stinson Beach, I'd get up and David Grisman and I would have a cup of coffee and, and just barefoot around the sand dunes with our mandolin. And David and I were, rejoicing in having uh, we we had already done a lot we had done earth opera and we had we're always playing bluegrass together but the we had a band called the bluegrass dropouts in fact that we played one gig and no one came and so <laughs> you know, our hopes for bluegrass as a commercial way to make a living were not high and uh, but we were listening to all kinds of stuff like, you know, uh, John Coltrane and uh, especially a guy named Eric Dolphy, who had such joy in his music, you know, and it was like a signal to us that. And every jazz musician we met the same, it was the signal was, you know, go for it, reach out there, you know. And so one day David said, you know, Garcia lives just up the hill and I had met Jerry on another trip to the West Coast for, you know, just to up, go up the house and hang out a little bit. 
But uh, so we went up uh, one morning and uh, Jerry had known we were coming and he met us out in the yard with that banjo on. It was like, oh yeah, this is the guy, you know, <laughs> you know, he, he's having fun with this, you know. And so uh, we just started picking and we picked every day. See, that's the thing is people go old in the way. It was only lasted a year. No, it, old in the way was at least six months before those gigs because we didn't have, you know, we played with John Kahn up at Jerry's house several times a week, just playing and playing and playing. And that's why the records sound good because we we didn't rehearse to make a record. We rehearsed because we loved the music. We picked, you know, and then it was like, hey, uh, Sam Cutler over at the Grateful Dead office, and he says that we could do some gigs. And so we started playing locally around the Bay Area, like at the Keystone and stuff like that. I'm knocking on your door again, my darling. I'm knocking on your door, please answer me. But I'm trying to make you realize, my darling, that no one else was ever meant for me. We never really thought about anything except the music. And the total surprise was because Jerry had already established himself with the Grateful Dead locally. And he even had the, the, one of the Garcia bands. I think the first one with uh, Merle Saunders. I remember going to the Matrix one night and hearing him. You know, he had a big local audience. He's a local boy. And to our surprise, I mean, nobody knew what bluegrass was. Quite honestly, nobody had ever heard it out here. And they, they were like, they talk about blown minds. I mean, it was like, what? <laughs> you know? And that just gave it more humor. It was, that gave us a, a more of uh, really joy in playing it was this, uh, you know, we sometimes have to ask them to be a little bit quiet though. You know, could just be quiet so we can hear the music. <laughs> Right. They didn't know, you know, I mean, they're all talking and laughing and jumping around and it's like, we're, we're playing acoustic instruments. <laughs> and, uh, you know, who our sound guy was, was Owsley, was Bear. Tell us about working with Bear. Oh, well, I'll just tell you one anecdote. Uh, we were on stage, we got to the gig a little bit late and Vassar was in the band by then. And so our sound check was in front of the audience standing around on stage, which that's sort of one of the hallmarks of the Grateful Dead is they just, they mill around on stage tuning and doing something, nobody knows what, <laughs> and then the music starts. So there was this sort of, my whole thing was, no, all that's gotta be done beforehand. We gotta go on stage and be like on, you know? But that wasn't how it was with Jerry. It was a big musical hangout. And we were on stage at the Keystone up in Berkeley and Wavy Gravy's over there in the corner playing his one string ectar. He's got a little gang of followers around him. And then the rest of the room is just sort of milling about and yeah, it's a good vibe. 
And Owsley is up in the sound booth. You can see him from the stage. And he's desperately trying to get the sound together because the sound had been set for some rock band the night before, which was meaning everything had to be EQ'd, all the note, you know, everything had to be squished to get all those sounds through the system, you know, because the big amplified sounds and our sound was just the opposite. So there's Owsley, and you can see him from the stage. He's he's desperately trying to, you know, repatch everything, you know, repatch all the connections. And there was a green light on the board casting this lurid green glow to his face. He looked like Doctor Who or something. And he had like patch cords, you know, the connecting cables in his teeth and around his neck. And Garcia walked over me, he nudged me, said, hey man, dig, dig Owsley. He loves his job. <laughs> I thought that would, it just cracked me up because he, Jerry could see that I was not comfortable with the feedback on stage howling away. And every time we go near a microphone, it would go, yeah, you know, uh, there was Owsley up there with the livid with green, you know, it looked like Medusa or something, you know. I'm working on a building, I'm working on a building, I'm working on a building for my Lord, for my Lord. It's a Holy Ghost building, it's a Holy Ghost building, it's a Holy Ghost building for my Lord, for my Lord. You brought in a ringer, a bluegrass ringer, you brought in Vassar Clements. Well, I would say Vassar was the musical leader of the band. At that point, he was the, the horse out in front of the pack. Um, he had had more experience, had done it longer than us, and was much more developed on his instrument. Um, I had, it's funny, five years before, when I was a bluegrass boy, we had stopped and had a, what they call breakfast, which is like, you go to a friend's house, driving home from the gig and you have a meal at one in the morning and keep driving. And uh, we had been in Monroe, Louisiana and we stopped up in uh, Alabama at banjo player's house, Rule Yarbrough. And he was playing, he played us some tapes of Vassar who had retired, but was jamming at a New Year's party at, it, at Rule's house. And it was just astounding. The music was so gorgeous. And uh, I got, he gave me Vassar's number. And uh, so five years later, Old in the Way is looking for a fiddle player, but John Hartford had played a gig with us at the boarding house and Richard Green had, um, but we had nobody to, to tour with us permanently. And so I just remember that I called Vassar. He said, I've got his number. So we just, we didn't know who to call. So I, I called, uh, actually I called Rule and I got Vassar's number from Rule again. And I talked to Vassar in Florida and he said, he said, yeah, just tell me when to be at the airport. I'll be there. That's all he said. Huh. And, and I didn't even know he knew who I was, but see, that's the thing in a small music like Bluegrass, everybody knew everybody. And even though I wasn't like a, a name or anything like that, I had been, he, Vassar had been a bluegrass boy, so he knew who was coming up in the bluegrass world and what they were doing. And uh, so he had moved to Florida and he had retired from, he had done the whole thing as far as you could go as a fiddler in bluegrass and country, which is playing the big bands. 
uh, ended up in uh, Las Vegas with the Judy Lynn show, which was a huge Western swing outfit with three fiddles. I mean, a, a, a full band in those days would have been three fiddles, accordion, guitar, pedal steel, piano, bass, and drums. That would have been, you know, your big Western swing band. Um, and uh, Vassar had done that. And he, there was just, there was no more to go as a fiddle player, you know. And, and of course, at that moment that he began playing with, with Olden in the Way, he also began recording on his own again. He got re-fired up. I mean, he had a whole musical life going on outside of Nashville, outside of any, any of that, you know, stepping stone career, you know, make the charts kind of musical thing. Uh, and that's where we were all at, is that we never saw any commercial possibility in bluegrass because the older generation was still there. The Bill, the Bill Monroe's, the Flat and Scruggs, and this and that, and we were just upstarts. So once we got Vassar in the band, we had the fastest horse in the, on the track, man. He unbelievably advanced uh, musical ideas, and he had all those jazz ideas, chromatic and uh, connected notes, all the Charlie Parker kind of stuff. He had everything going on the fiddle that we loved about the music we were listening to, you know, the jazz players able to become have a great, huge, great faculty on their instruments to be able to, you know, f be so free, you know. And Vassar had that, and he was musically our leader, yeah. So all these years later, how did Peter Rowan and Railroad Earth team up to revisit the music of Olden in the Way? Those guys, uh, they've always been really great to me um, over the years. We've done a few things. And I, I saw John, uh, I think we were at the uh, Rhythm and Roots Festival in Rhode Island. I was there with my, uh, the Free Mexican Air Force. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, why I asked him, I said, do you think we maybe we could, we could do something together again, try something? And uh, he said, yeah, we could do. We thought about he had different topics, reggabilly, you know, do reggae, do my reggae side or we do. Uh, you know, it came down to doing the olden in the way uh, as a show itself, the music, the music of olden in the way. I think that was the most uh, recognizable form that would reach the most people, you know.
And we're all looking forward to hearing Peter Rowan perform the music of Olden in the Way with Railroad Earth, and to hear Railroad Earth play some music of their own at the long-delayed 30th Annual High Sierra Music Festival in Quincy, California, this July 4th weekend. For more information on the festival, go to highsierramusic.com. Thanks to Peter Rowan and Tim Carbone for taking the time to join us on this first episode of the High Sierra Podcast. Future episodes will feature other artists performing this summer at High Sierra, such as Green Sky Bluegrass, Femi Kuti, A.J. Lee and Molly Tuttle, and more. I'm Tim Lynch. Thanks for listening. Our theme music comes from Birch's Bend. The High Sierra Music Festival podcast was produced by Flower Punk Productions in association with the High Sierra Music Festival.